Welcome to Lost Levels Club. Welcome to Lost Levels Club. Now with me tonight, Sir Michael. Hello. And myself, Timothy. Hello. We're a book club for games. But not today. Today, we are going to talk about some solo developed games. Our shortlist of solo developed games. Yeah. Why are we doing this? Because our dear boy Mike has taken some time out to build his own game. That that was the dream, right? That was the dream. Why is it past tense? What are you doing to me? <laughs> it's just it, it just turns out that reality is actually much harder. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, I had this childhood dream that I was going to make computer games, that I wanted to make computer games, and then... I got given this opportunity to take a break from my corporate life and make computer games. And I thought it was going to be easy. And it turns out it's not easy at all. I was just like, I can program. I'm just going to sit down in front of Unity and fart out some amazing stuff. And well, with that verb, that has definitely obviously not you're not taking the, the process. You're not taking the process seriously, are you? I can tell you're going to fail when you're going to fart something out. Well, I, I don't know. There, there's, I think farting out stuff is actually something I do need to do, but I just need to expect that the things I fart out are farts and not golden <laughs> nuggets of, of amazingness, you know? But you, know, you need to be allowed to fart out some, some rubbish, you know, at the start. Yes, yes. Without the cult-like following at the same, you know, that happens at the same time. So we thought it would be good to talk about some games that were made by solo devs and also a little bit about the journey that went into making those games yep so what counts as a solo dev well this all started with my suggestion of i want to put fez down on my shortlist (laughs) and that was like Fez is not a solo developed game. So Phil Fish does not qualify. I, I can't, you know, maybe I'm just being a snob, but he didn't write the game. He designed it. There, there was definitely another guy who wrote Fez, right? Yes. So in my mind, Fez is made by two people. But then maybe I am just being a snob because... There's lots of other games on this list where, you know, the art and the music have been done by someone else. But for some reason, for me, if the programming is done by someone else, then that's not okay. <laughs> I don't know. So it's decided. You can disagree with me. You can disagree with me. Well, obviously, I've agreed with you because I've taken Fez off the list. It's also because Phil Fish is just such a ludicrous character. That's what makes him a solo dev. <laughs> Sorry, that's nonsense. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Are you saying I've got a chance? <laughs> yes. It's, it's, <laughs> you've gone through the whole mental journey of being a solo dev without building a game. <laughs> you've gone through the pain and you've produced nothing. Genius. This is like next level. Oh, yeah, we, I should have just started vlogging your life in a, in a in a catfish silly and just see what happened that's all you should have done and they made sir mike the doc yeah, this is like this is like the minecraft documentary just without <laughs> the amazingly <laughs> successful game it would just be very confusing imagine if we just became famous indie filmmakers instead by accident <laughs> it'd be like an incredible send-up of the yeah okay sorry we're, we're we're veering way off topic here sorry yes so structurally we've each picked a few games we're going to talk about the game we're going to talk about the dev we're going to talk about the process that led to the making of the game Two games that would have been on my list, but I feel like we've talked about them many times already. So, just going to cover them off quickly now. Braid, 2008, by Jonathan Blow. 
and Space Cam 2011 by Zach Barth. We've said a lot about both of these games in the past. For Braid, there was a recent talk Jonathan Blow did at the 2019 Taipei Game Developers Forum. That talk is really interesting. So if you want a really good summary of what led to the creation of Braid and the negativity he received while making Braid, and also all the massive advantages he had that other indie games didn't have, and he still almost failed while making Braid. That talk is actually really interesting to watch. So I'll put a link in the show notes. And for Space Chem, Zach Bath, we actually talked about it at length in our TIS 100 episode, which is another programming puzzle game made by Zachtronics, which is the company that Zach Bath founded. So for that, you can listen to that app again or just watch his 10 years of terrible games talk. And with that, on to our picks. Yeah, let's start. So my first pick is Lucas Pope, who made Papers, Please in 2013 and Return of the Obra Dinn in 2018. Have you played either of these? I have share played, remote played, share screened Obra Dinn. So I had my friend, he was playing it whilst I watched the, the stream and I just helped him along. We, we kind of worked on it together, but we didn't play much. Oh, interesting. I mean, these are both... What what are they? Like, really weird and experimental games? They're games that... Not not too experimental. I mean, if you go into it, you know what... You know the context and you know what you need to do. So the setup is really clever. So I wouldn't say they're experimental. from From a gamer's perspective, yes, they're experimental. But if you're not a gamer... They're not that experimental. You know, can, you can tell what the game is. I, well, I don't know. I mean, they're not on the surface of it fun, right? Like the, the mechanics of it are not fun. And if you describe the game to someone, it would sound not fun. But the total package of the game is really fun. You know, like, so Papers, Please is a game where you are a passport inspector, like at the border of some totalitarian fictional country, you know, glories to Astoshka. And Return of the Oberdin, you are an insurance assessor who has to determine how much they should pay out for a ghost ship. But yeah, both games are incredibly fun. There's, there's something weirdly visceral about lining up and stamping someone's passport or, you know, holding up and looking at them and comparing their height and weight and the other stuff. I don't know. There's something weirdly entertaining about it, plus the dystopian backstory and the meta game about trying to escape to a better life with your family. And then the Obra Dinn is literally just a detective game. It's literally actually a detective game. So did he do his own art? I, I think he did. I think he did everything. I mean, I might be wrong. If, you, if you've got a reference that shows I'm wrong, please say it now. A true solo dev. Yeah, as, as far as I'm aware, he did it himself. I, I know in particular for the Obra Dinn, the reason it has that strange 
one bit aesthetic was to you know reduce the art overhead to a more manageable level you know that's the reason the entire game is just in like one color so what led to the creation of these games i think lucas pope is the kind of classical life story of a successful indie dev you know a lot of indie devs worked in the games industry you know in a larger company and then struck off on their own for creative freedom but you know that background working in games gave them the skills they needed to make their own games if you see what i mean so in the case of lucas pope he started out i think from quake modding way back in the day obviously i think he i think he's 40 something so he's older than us he's older even than us elder millennials and then he worked for various companies he eventually ended up at naughty dog so you know he actually was working at a triple a studio for a while and in 2009 he was making you know some small game projects with his wife i think the the famous one was one called mightier which i've never played but i think that's that's one that actually had some success or looked like it was going somewhere and then in 2010 he quit naughty dog and moved to japan with his wife his wife is japanese and then was just working on his own stuff papers please was meant to take a few weeks i think it was meant to be a little experimental game that he was gonna just well <laughs> fart out <laughs> fart out's the wrong term really but you know he was just going to make because it was interesting, but he he didn't expect it to be commercially successful. He was just going to spend a bit of time, make this cool little game, and then move on to something he thought could be commercially successful. But in the end, there was a lot of interest in Papers, Please, and he spent nine months actually making it into the game we got. And then another thing I think that's going to be common to a lot of the games at this time he spent a lot of time on TigSource and the TigSource forums. So TigSource is what? The independent gaming source. It's a website. It's a website actually run by Derek Yu, who is famous now for Spelunky. And it was kind of central to the indie gaming scene in the early 2010s. The website itself is kind of dead now, like the blog post part, but I think the forums are probably still going strong. I used to read it a lot as well and have an account on the forums and stuff. But, you know, it's another thing where I kind of lost my way at some point. Anyway, I guess that's the main stuff I wanted to say about Lucas Pope. to talk about Chris Sawyer, who made Transport Tycoon, Road Coast Tycoons 1 and 2. Now, have you played these, Mike? Is this one of, no, one of the few games you've not played? Yeah, I have actually, I have actually never played these games. I've, I've played Open TTD. Oh, that's, so yeah. I guess that kind of means I've played Transport Tycoon. I, I've never played Roller Coaster Tycoon. So Transport Tycoon was the first paid for PC game that I got. It was in a bundle that came with Theme Park. As a teenager, it's this what's the right way to say it? You know, you want model trains, planes and automobiles, and that's this in a game. I think, you know, you talked about, oh, I wish I could make games. I think this was the kind of game I would have liked to make. 
So simulations. Yeah, and I think it's has it. Is it fair to say that this has spawned a tycoon genre? I mean, everyone say tycoon games. Are these the tycoon games? Yeah, I mean, these must be early on in the history, particularly Transport Tycoon. This must be early on in the history of sim games, I guess. I mean, SimCity predates it, but it's certainly one of the foundational games, I guess, of the genre. What's surprising is that he was a, I don't know, you, I would say pivot, but then you would say, oh, it's the same thing, Ting. It's, like, it's, a, it's an isometric map and you're just plonking things on top of it and you're just drawing agents between buildings, facilities, towns, you know. Do you know what I mean? When, you know, he's gone from Transport Tycoon to Roller Coast Tycoon. But you'll say it's just all... Did it's... he design these games as well? He, he literally came up with the concept and wrote it. Yeah, he did. I mean, that is pretty incredible. And what, you know, what's more incredible is this is a time before Unity. And it's written, I think 99% of it is written in assembly. And then like 1% is in C. Now, that is incredible. Like, if you're not a programmer, I don't know if, I don't know if you can comprehend just quite how insane that is. I mean, I guess people do do things like this. Like, you know, people who write ROM hacks are essentially doing this. But yeah, writing a game on the scale of Transport Tycoon or Roller Coaster Tycoon in assembly is kind of insane. You know, assembly is basically one step up from literal machine code. Up, down, yeah, one step away. As per your definition, he partnered with artists for music and art, so I think we're good there. Yeah. And interestingly, you know, there are open source versions of these games. So there's Open Transport Tycoon Deluxe and then there's Open RCT. So, you know, that, I think that that's impressive in itself. It's the core mechanic has sort of endured for over 20 years now. And if we were talking about these games later in the list, <laughs> we'd appreciate that it's all about the core mechanics and the scalability of it all. So, you know, I don't want to say what we're going to say next. I don't want to reveal, you know, the next games <laughs> that we're going to talk about. <laughs> If it's the sense that you've got one this one core mechanic that you can just scale out to, you know, potentially infinity, obviously limited by processing power back then, right? There's no reason why you can't just scale this out ten, hundred thousand times. But I feel I just I'm always prepared in case you want to counter what I say. It's just it's it's obviously I haven't played these games, so. I don't, I don't have that same insight, I think. I mean, I, I played a tiny bit of Transport Tycoon, Open TTD, but I've, I've not played Rollercoaster Tycoon at all. I, I weirdly went through a phase of watching YouTube videos where people explained weird, glitchy mechanics in Rollercoaster Tycoon. This just goes to show how deep down the YouTube rabbit hole I've been. <laughs> they showed, like, they, they deliberately, like, made a maze in Rollercoaster Tycoon that exploited problems in the pathfinding algorithm and it would take like 65 million years or something for one of the people to find their way out of the maze. But yeah, I, I think it's fascinating. They are kind of way ahead of their time. Something I do want to talk about is this is all pre-modern day indie, I would say. So these games were released in the 90s and it was a time when you still needed to, to partner with a publisher to get your game published. That is, yeah, that is actually a really interesting point because I think like the arc of game development, you know, it started out with bedroom coders and a lot of games were written by an individual or maybe two or three people, you know, and then you'd get your game and you'd put it on a tape or a disc and you'd take it to a swap meet or literally mail order through some magazine and then obviously it morphed into the era we're more familiar with where there are publishers and you partner with a publisher and they they distribute your game. But around the late 2000s and early 2010s, that's when we had the resurgence of, you know, the new generation of indies. And it became viable again to make a game with a small team. But yeah, at the time of these games... 
solo dev games, I think, were pretty unusual. At least ones on this level of success. So, interestingly, but maybe not surprising, is that he was able to put the games together without, you know, having their deal up front. So he, he presented a finished game. I know, at least in the case for Rollercoaster Coaster Tycoon, he presented a completed game to the publisher and therefore he was able to hold on to the IP. You know, normally if, if you put a deal in up front, you're going to have to give away the IP or give away a significant chunk as you sign the deal. But he presented a pretty much completed game. So he he's hold, held on to the Rollercoaster Coaster Tycoon IP. And as it stands now, he's he owns the franchise and he licenses it out to Atari. And I think a lot of people know about the the later Rollercoaster Tycoon games because they're not great. <laughs> yeah. And this one's for you, Mike. He made thirty million dollars in royalties for the first Rollercoaster Tycoon. That's amazing. That's even after the publisher cut. That's in the nineties as well. Yeah. Is that? I guess this is over a long period of time, oh, yeah, maybe. but but e- even so, like even a million dollars in the nineties was like serious money. Yeah, what a legend! Wrote it in assembler, thirty million dollars in royalties. I just wanted to mention that he also had the same sort of trajectory. He worked in video games before, and then he he went on to develop these on his own, and in a not so recent Eurogame interview, but he doesn't do many interviews. He described himself as narrow-minded, self-motivated, obsessed with details, sometimes stubborn, often persistent, and usually playful. And I've put here, can Mike relate? I don't know. How would you describe me? <laughs> uh, young Mike would have been narrow-minded, self-motivated, obsessed with details, sometimes stubborn, often persistent, and usually playful. Yeah, you are like this. In a, in, not in a, not in a non-diverse way, if you know what I mean. You weren't narrow-minded in the sense that you were looking for trouble and offending everyone. Or you offended some people. I think that's what made it good. Yeah. Uh, the problem is that, like, Neo-Mike is <laughs> a little bit lost. And the second quote I wanted to, to mention was, he never wants to go back to the old days of working 16 hours a day, seven days a week. In your dream of game development, did you imagine 16 hours a day, seven days a week? I think I would be okay with it if it's something I wanted to do. And it's like, that sounds like a tautology. Welcome to the tautology club. Yeah, I would be happy doing it if it was something I was happy doing. Yeah, no, it's, you know, I have, I have worked crazy hours like i worked 16 hours a day for seven days a week you know before in in corporate stuff because i wanted to get something done you know and i think if i had that if i was making something and i could see it coming together for sure i'd be okay doing it for sure i would want to do it you know that's what i'm i think that's what i'm trying to find again you know this is this is some of the stuff i feel like at some point along the way without realizing it I lost it and I'm not sure where it's gone or how to, you know, reignite it. Like my inner fire, you know, there was a time when I could just knock stuff out. You know, I mean, I was going to say fart stuff out again. I could just like make stuff with like very little effort, very little effort on the surface anyway. You know, I could just switch on. I could just start concentrating and just start working on something. And just keep going. I think we, you know, we talked before about what, like being in the zone or like flow or whatever, and like how hard it is to get into the zone. And I was just like, no, it isn't. Just do it. You know, I used to be able to just like, just switch it on and just do it. And I didn't realize it was a superpower until I lost it. (laughs) And then you've got me on the side setting timers and things just to get myself going. Yeah. Well, now the only thing I can do 16 hours a day, seven days a week is watch YouTube. So, you know, what happened to me? Some would call that a superpower also. It's not a very useful one.
So, my second shortlisted game is A Short Hike 2019 by Adam Robinson Yu. This game is really recent. It was the free game on the Epic Store one week, and I decided to play it. And it was really good. You know, it was, it was a short game, but it made me it made me feel something, you know? It was mechanically fun to play, and it made me feel something. And then I saw some talk he did about the making of the game and how it was made in three months. And I was like, what the? <laughs> three months? I mean, that is, I mean, that is crazy. So a bit about the game, because maybe not everyone knows that much about it. You play as a little bird called Claire. It has Breath of the Wild style climbing mechanics. So you, you're literally going on a short hike to get to the top of this mountain. And like the mountain is like, it's like a national park or something, you know, there's like, there's lots of stuff to explore around on the island that the mountain is on. You know, you can go around the beaches, you can get into forests and find little caves or lighthouses and whatever. And yeah, you can climb up stuff like Breath of the Wild. And you, you know, I'm, you can unlock a bigger stamina gauge and you can climb higher and, and things. And then there are other just cute little animals you can talk to and like, you know, they'll give you quests that you can fulfill like oh no i've lost my bucket and spade or something or i want to build a sandcastle i don't know it's cute but not in a saccharin way it's fun the exploration the music is beautiful although he didn't write the music he he got someone else to do the music mark sparling and <laughs> it was made in three months that is mind-blowing so some background about Adam Robinson Yu. In 2017, he quit his software engineering job to make indie games. Although he had been making games just little, you know, as little side projects for himself for a while before that. You know, so he, he, these, these are the games that he'd been fighting out, I guess, that weren't commercial successes, but where he was honing his craft. And he spent a year working on an RPG, like a paper Paper Mario, I guess, style RPG. But in December 2018, he decided to take a break and just try making something else just for a little bit, just to give himself some mental space, you know. So he made this tiny little prototype game where you're a little bird that could run around and climb and fly. And it was fun and he liked what he had and he was kind of torn about whether to try and polish up and finish this small thing he'd made or just shelve it and go back to making his RPG. And some games he had played that year, so the ones he specifically cites, The Haunted Island, a frog detective game, which I've not played, and Minute, which I have, you know, he played those two games and he was like, you know what? Short games can be good. So I'm going to try and finish a short game. I'm going to make this, you know, bird game into a short game. And so he did. And he got funding from the Humble Originals program, which is something, you know, like Humble Bundle do. If you're subscribed, I think they, they have some games that they put out under this Humble Originals brand. So he, he got some money from them. and he gave himself the deadline of three months just to get it out and release it in that, that month's, you know, humble subscription pack. And then he did. So kind of amazing. What, what is more amazing, the game itself or the three months it took? I, I think the version of the game I played is more than three months work. I think... The version that went out with Humble Originals was the three months version. And then because it got such a good reception, he went back and polished it and added a bit more. And then it was released again on Steam and Epic. So it's not quite as mind-blowing as it initially seems. 
but it's still pretty mind-blowing. I mean, it's made by one person, and it is, you know, it's got Breath of the Wild climbing mechanics, for goodness sake, you know. Like, the art, the level design, all the coding done by, yeah, this one guy. And, and it's a really good game, you know. If, if you collected it as the weekly free epic game, it's worth going back and playing it if you didn't play it at the time. This next one's a biggie. I've chosen Minecraft. Developed by Marcus Pearson, a.k.a. Notch. Mike, do you have anything to add? I mean, I guess this is one of the most famous indie games of all time. Surely. Like, this is a phenomenon, right? Like, Minecraft, Minecraft changed the world, in a sense. Or the world was, the world was changed by the existence of Minecraft cultural you know the culture yeah and notch certainly notch kind of very publicly went mad right <laughs> define mad but he oh dear yeah he th- things happened to, like notch's twitter became increasingly bizarre it, doesn't he believe in QAnon? I don't know. There are so many funny things he did. I mean, he became, he he went from being a nobody random game dev to a multi-billionaire who bought a house in Hollywood that, what was it, like Jay-Z and Beyonce were bidding on? He outbid Jay-Z and Beyonce for a house. The house has like a Skittle room, for example. Skittle's like, it's literally just got like canisters of all the different colors of skittles like color coded or something it's just like insane there's just so many bizarre things he did i remember like a particular twitter exchange where he was just making some inflammatory statements and someone was going like dude you can't talk like that you know no one's gonna hire you and he was like bitch i'm a billionaire (laughs) like i don't need anyone to hire me It was a you know a factual statement in his defense. He got married. His marriage broke down. I mean, he's just like his life was a crazy roller coaster. And Minecraft was lightning in a bottle, you know. I'm not sure there's been anything like it since. You know, where where a single person has made something that became such a significant cultural phenomenon and became a multi-billionaire as a result at this point do we need to talk about minecraft yeah i would think everyone probably knows about minecraft as a game as a game i mean it might be worth talking a little bit about how minecraft came to be yeah because that's what i'm interested in because we're, we're i'm interested in the indie dev portion of minecraft's history yeah, because now Minecraft exists. There are so many games like Minecraft. But when Minecraft happened, there was nothing like Minecraft. Apart from Infiniminer, poor Zach Bath. So, yeah, that's the, inter- like the inception, the, the conception of Minecraft and how it came to be, I think, is interesting. So I think I'm going to need your help here because I didn't join the minecraft journey as early as you did when did, so do you own minecraft yeah i own minecraft and, and when did you play it in 2014 maybe earlier may sorry maybe earlier than that but i i remember playing it at length 
in 2014. So I may have owned it before and I just didn't play it. Okay. So Minecraft is another game that I knew about from TigSource. There were posts about it on the TigSource forums and also on the actual main TigSource blog. Occasionally there'd be development updates about it. So I played the creative mode, you know, early prototype Minecraft as a Java applet after seeing it on TigSource. And honestly, I was like, eh, it's all right. Interesting. I can just put some blocks down. Closed it. Didn't really think about it again for a while. I looked at it again when it went viral on Slashdot. And that's when I then bought into it and tried playing survival and realized this game is actually incredible. Like it's like nothing else that exists at the time. So funny things. I mean, I guess Notch, Notch worked at King, you know, the company that makes Candy Crush. I find that really interesting. Like that's what Notch was doing immediately before making indie games. I think he, I guess he actually did some other stuff too. I think he was working on some, what, Jalbum or something, some like Java photo album thing. I don't know. Anyway, before Minecraft was Minecraft, there was Ruby Dung. And I think that was like Rubyland Dungeons or something. That was the, that was like the full name, but it was called Ruby Dung. The, the executable, the class files, whatever. And it was actually meant to be kind of like a Dwarf Fortress type game, but just like visualized in 3D. Because, you know, Dwarf Fortress is, well, that's a whole other thing. It's very impenetrable. You know, it's all text. It's like the Matrix. Dwarf Fortress is actually like the Matrix. But was it a, a tool to visualize Dwarf Fortress or was it a Dwarf Fortress-like game, a separate game? It, it was a Dwarf Fortress-like game. Okay. But it, it did have like a first-person mode, but that wasn't its main thing. You know, it like had a it had like an adventure mode where you could go into first person and explore your world, but it was meant to be played like isometrically. But then Notch played Infiniminer, which was a procedurally generated infinite mining simulator by Zach Barth, the guy who made Space Chem. And after that, he took the code base for Ruby Dung and hacked about with it, and in a weekend, which is kind of wild, made the first version of Minecraft, which was obviously designed to be played from a first-person perspective and was all about mining blocks and placing blocks. So I can't, because it was before my time, I can't connect the, fill in the gap between you know, when he was first developed in May 2009 to December 2011 when he formed Mojang. When did it, you know, when did it go viral on Slashdot? Uh, it went viral before Mojang. Like, it, it, I think it went obviously. viral during that first year, you know. Like, I, I played it when it was still in alpha. So, I, I missed out the in-dev and inf-dev phases. You know, that's when... Because the game kind of started out, like, in the creative mode, you know, where you can just place blocks and, and whatever. But then... Then there was, like, the proto-survival mode, I guess. And then... The game world wasn't infinite. It was kind of like just a volume of voxels, but it didn't go on forever. And then InfDev, which was experimenting with making the game infinite. And then the alpha, which is when everything really kind of came together. And alpha Minecraft, I think, is kind of... It's very recognized. It's not that different to Minecraft today, if you ask me. And that's when I first got into it so it, it all happened pretty rapidly i think you know like the game was changing like every week you know certainly in the early days every week there would be an update and new blocks would be added or new mechanics would be added yeah it happened fast and the game also just went viral and exploded really quick like i remember i remember notch publicly like excoriating paypal because they froze his account because like you know his the paypal account where people could buy minecraft went from like zero dollars to a few hundred dollars to millions of dollars you know in a very short space of time and then paypal froze the account and i think it literally took him like many many months to get that money so 
he was not happy with PayPal. But it's not only, you know, talking about it from a dev perspective, there's network, he would put the networking code together himself as well. Do his multiplayer. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, no. Well, the multiplayer was jank. The multiplayer <laughs> was jank for a long time. Like, there, there were lots of things that were, because re- I think this is another, this is definitely a lesson, right? Like a lesson that I need to learn. Because what I think is really holding me back from making anything is my sense of perfectionism. Not YouTube. <laughs> a bit of both. I'm really good at watching YouTube. That's why I keep doing it. Yeah. Like, I have a problem where I'm, I just, I'm finding it very difficult to fart stuff out because I know it's bad. And I'm not allowing myself to make something bad. But the, things, things are often bad at the start, right? And like the early versions of Minecraft and particularly the multiplayer, absolute jank fests like they barely worked and minecraft was really weird as well because they used to be different single player and multiplayer kind of clients like you know you could start the game in single player or you could start the game in multiplayer and they were very different and i remember it was a big deal when eventually the multiplayer the single player game was just like shelved it was like you know what it's a it works better now but it's a dead end and then eventually the multiplayer became the actual standard client and even when you're playing in single player you're just interacting with like a local multiplayer server and that is when the actual multiplayer became good because that's when all the effort went into making it work properly but in the early days multiplayer total jank like i remember using a pickaxe and before your pickaxe broke you could just throw it on the ground and pick it up again and it would have full durability because the network code didn't actually track the durability of items once they were thrown on the ground. You could just like infinitely repair your pickaxe by just like yeeting it, picking it up and then just like carrying on using it, you know? So it was, it was so bad, but it was also just so good. It was just, it was so fun. And so, because it was just like nothing else existed at the time. Like I literally remember playing with a group of friends and like one evening, all we did was just dig a massive hole <laughs> from ground level down to the bottom of the world, like this massive square pit. That's all we did for like two or three hours while chatting. But we had a great time, you know. See, I d- it's interesting because Minecraft could have been the metaverse. But obviously now we have Roblox. Well, I think technically Roblox predates Minecraft. But oh, that's, sorry. that's another whole discussion that we kind of went into and we maybe should revisit when the metaverse becomes more of a thing. Epic wants to create the metaverse also. In Fortnite. Yeah. <laughs> just just Floss for me, peasant. You know, like, I don't know. Should we try to close this one? Yeah. I want to say that I feel like this is the game you wanted to make. Or you feel you feel like this is the game you could have made. Maybe not that's no longer the case. Yeah, for a long time I was kicking myself thinking if I had more faith in my abilities, imagine if I had made Minecraft. Right? If if instead of toiling away at my corporate job i had made minecraft because minecraft is literally made in the programming language that i know really well and you know it too right it's like it's the programming language that we both use slash used in our jobs day to day java you know like we technically have all of the skills required to make minecraft but obviously we didn't So 
the final one on my list, To the Moon 2011 by Kangal. This game, you know, if we're looking at the, the spectrum of indie games, you know, like Minecraft is a game I feel like I could have made. You know, like I had the technical skills to make it and it's a game that I enjoy and it's kind of, it feels like a game a programmer would make, right? Like it's, it's very procedural and there's systems and, you know, it, it feels like the sort of game that my mind would naturally gravitate towards making. To the Moon, totally the opposite, which I guess is the reason I put it on this list, just to show, you know, it's not all about programming puzzle games and, and procedural generation. To the Moon is, it's, it's, a, it's a game with beautiful music, and it's kind of all about the music and the way the story makes you feel. It's kind of barely a game. It's like a walking simulator without the walking. I mean, there's technically walking, but it's like 2D top down. You know, it's made, it's made an RPG maker. So it's very different from the, the games I normally would play. But I have played it and I really enjoyed it. You've not played this. No, I couldn't even recognize if you showed me a screenshot. I know so little about this. I also don't think this is a game you would enjoy because, you know, you don't listen to the music in games, right? Or music doesn't, music doesn't work on you the same way it works on me, I think. Agreed. So it would be interesting to see your reaction to playing this, but that's a, that's a conversation for another day. So, Are there achievements? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> The, the story about how this was made, though, I think is also interesting. So the dev, Kangao, it's all made by him, but it, it's mostly the music. And I guess music and storytelling are, you know, what he considers to be his core skills. He actually studied computer science, like computer science was his major, but he didn't think he was a good programmer and he didn't, he didn't want to program, which is why the game is made in RPG Maker, you know, which basically takes care of most of the programming for you. He spent five years making another RPG Maker game called Quintessence. But To the Moon, I guess, was his first commercial project, and it's the first one that was a commercial success as well. It was inspired by his grandfather falling seriously ill, and then that causing him to think about mortality. You know, and, and To the Moon is a. The plot of To the Moon is. A story about, well, I guess reflecting on your life. You play as two doctors who provide a service where people who are terminally ill, people who are about to die, they will go into your memories and edit them so that as you die, you feel you lived the life you wished you'd lived. And so this guy's dying wish is to believe he went to the moon. But there's obviously more to it than that. Yeah, so it's a great game. It's all about the story. It's all about the music. The graphics, the programming, they don't really come into it. But it just goes to show, yeah, you can be an indie without being a dev. Unless you're Phil Fish. Sorry. <laughs> Are we done? Yeah, I think that was it for the list. Oh, good, good, good. Shall we talk about honourable mentions? Yeah, well, I think we should just say, go on. There are more games. There are there are more solo developed games that we could talk about, right? Like, I think the thing that really struck me while doing the research for this app was how many of the games that I've played in the last ten years that I thought were really amazing games that I thought were really imaginative were actually made by either solo devs or by teams of, you know, like two or three people. So there are so many more games we could talk about. And, you know, if you enjoyed this episode, let us know. Because maybe we'll do it again and we'll cover some more of these games that, that we could talk about. Because, yeah, 
for me certainly stardew valley i think is an obvious one like that that game is very famously developed by just one person originally undertale there's certainly you know we talked about it before in a book club ep but i feel like there's lots more we could say now with hindsight cave story you know a quintessential indie metroidvania that had such a cult following that it became a bigger commercial success any any from you oh let's not forget splunky yeah derek you tick source like the center of the indie game universe it turns out and there's loads of games made by two people too so you know ftl slay the spire the binding of isaac Fez, if I'm being facetious. <laughs> yeah, so I feel there's fertile territory if we wanted to do another app like this in future. We were Lost Levels Club. We still are Lost Levels Club. Please rate and subscribe to us on iTunes. Please, please, please. You can find us on email. Mike.and.ting at lostlevels.club on twitter at lostlevelsclub anywhere else reddit slash r slash lostlevelsclub so mike what are you grateful for today i am grateful that i finally made it back to hong kong after (laughs) almost six months (sighs) yeah so but by next episode, I should be out of quarantine. And then I can just get on with the rest of my life, whatever that happens to be. <laughs> so I'm grateful. I'm grateful I finally made it back. So the next recording will be out of quarantine. Let's hope so. So Michael says bye. Bye bye.